to open up the word of... There we are. Good morning. <laughs> Good to see you all. Uh, no, you know, you as a church are more blessed than you'd know. You have some very, very faithful men as your shepherds. Uh, and I am privileged and grateful to have spent the past day or so getting to know them a little bit better. Very grateful for Pastor Tom uh, for his testimony of uh, profound faithfulness here at this church, in particular in the past couple of years. It's been a joy to get to know him a little bit better and to spend some time together uh, with some of your leaders here at Hope Bible. So, it really has been my privilege to be here, and it is certainly a profound privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. We're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1 together here today, and I want to spend some time talking with you all about how to get your sanctification unstuck. I know that's a helpful topic for all of us. It's been helpful to me as I've studied this passage, and there, there really is some profound truth, as there is in every passage, but in this one in particular, that I think, that I think speaks to this specific subject. A couple days ago, I had the opportunity to have some meetings down in Washington, D.C., and my meetings ended around 8 o'clock or so, and I had a couple of hours that were free, and uh, so I spent my my evening there, kind of later into the night, uh, walking around the National Mall, which I know you probably aren't supposed to do in the dark, but I did, Uh, and as I was walking around, I came up to the very foot of the Washington Monument. And as I came up to the base of that giant monument that rises up out of the National Mall, I was struck by something that I had never really noticed before. The Washington Monument changes colors about one-third of the way up. Now, I don't know. You all live here. I don't know if you've actually noticed that before or not, but I had no one really to ask, why is it that way? Because all the tour guides were gone for the day, and there I am in the dark, staring at the Washington Monument, trying to figure out why would they have changed the color a third of the way up? Surely, that was not the decision of an interior designer. Why would they have done such a thing? So I did what any good tourist would do. I whipped out my cell phone, and I I asked Siri. Siri, why does the Washington Monument change a third of the way up? And the story that I found, that I uncovered, was really very fascinating to me. I'm a bit of a a history buff. And I found out that the Washington Monument construction started back in 1848, and it went on for six years. And they got about a third of the way up the monument, and then in 1854, the project ran out of money. And so instead of borrowing some cash from Japan or from China... They just stopped. They stopped construction. And there the Washington Monument sat, stuck, for the next 23 years, sticking out of the National Mall like a giant stub through all the years of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln would have seen it started, but he never saw it finished because work did not resume on the monument until they had finally decided, let's get around to finishing this thing off. 23 years later, in 1884, the work resumed. And in the intervening time, they thought, what could we do to finish this? Maybe there's a way for us to figure out how to artistically just put a cap on it where it stands. And boy, are we grateful that they did not do that, because that would have been very ugly. But by the time that they actually got back around to finishing it, they they ran into a, a bit of a challenge, you see. Because the original quarry that they had started using back in the 1840s was completely gone. It was mined out. And so there was no more granite or marble or whatever it was that they were using there in that quarry, and so they had to find a different quarry. 
And that is the reason why to this day the Washington Monument is two very distinct colors and it changes right there about a third of the way up. You can see the difference to this day. You know, I think back to those years when the Washington Monument sat there in that field for so many decades, just obviously half finished, not complete, stuck. And I think that for us, sanctification can many times feel exactly like that. It can feel like we are half finished, we are stuck, there is seemingly so little progress in our spiritual growth, and and we yearn with all of our hearts to not be a half finished monument to the grace of God. Am I right? We say our life feels like nothing more than a monument to a half finished work. So, how do I grow? How do I get my spiritual walk unstuck? And that is the technical theological term for those of you who are wondering, unstuck. But what does, what does progressive sanctification mean when it doesn't feel like I'm actually progressing at all? You know, the Apostle Peter, he, he knew a lot about exactly how you feel and how I feel when we look at our lives and survey our progress. Because, look, let's face it, he's the only disciple to whom Jesus ever said at all, get behind me, Satan. Boy, talk about feeling unfinished at that point. He's the only one who ever verbally denied Christ after having evidenced so much bravado, where he says, I got this, only to have a rooster tell him that he had nothing. You see, Peter was the embodiment of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says it best, he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But Peter had to realize that he had nothing and Christ had everything. And as he puts his pen to paper or parchment or whatever it was that he was writing on, here in 2 Peter chapter 1, I think he rightly captures that sense. You see, he captures the the heartbeat of a true believer there in in 2 Peter chapter 1. Well, let's look at verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, when your spiritual pulse begins to start and begins, your heart begins to beat, the true believer desires, we're told here, grace. It's that gift of eternal blessing from God. The true believer desires here in verse 2, peace, a gift of reconciliation. The true believer here desires knowledge. It's the gift of relationship to the Savior. And what quantity does the true believer desire that grace, peace, and knowledge in? He desires that these things be, be multiplied. And that word there, multiplied, it's the same word that's used in the book of Acts to talk about the exponential growth of the church. It's the idea of compound interest, right? The idea of a bank account that is, that is rich and vibrant and flush. It's the idea of a compounding sort of interest where you put in $10 and, and 50 years from now it turns into, I don't know, $100,000. If you can figure out how to get that rate of return, please call me after and let me know. But that's the idea, this compounding sort of interest. In short, we're told here that the true believer, he desires a a profound and a vital compounding relationship to God, both the Father, we're told here, and the Son. And the question that we have to ask as we look at verse 2 and we see this grace and peace and knowledge being multiplied, we have to ask ourselves the question as we're stuck in the mire of our daily lives, yeah, but is that actually possible? Can that actually happen? Well, skip down a few verses to verse 10 there in chapter 1. Look with me. Peter says, it is possible, 
For if you practice these qualities, at the end of that verse, he says, you will never fail. And so the key question that stands before us this morning is how? How does this happen? And that is precisely what Peter focuses on in this passage. And it's the answer that I want us to spend time looking at together. And in in these verses, between verses 2 and verse 10, Peter basically gives us an equation that breaks down into two halves. The first half, the part we're going to look at this morning together, is the part that God does in moving your sanctification along. You have to grasp that. You have to start there and depend upon his power and his work. But then the second part is what you do, the activity that you apply yourself to. And as as Peter well understood, the order of operations in that formula requires that the second half, our efforts, be founded and grounded completely in the first half, God's efforts. And while your effort is commanded in dozens of places in the New Testament, Those efforts must and will fail if they are being undertaken and conducted apart from a total dependence upon the work of God within us. You see, the necessary work of sanctification, it can only be undertaken with a full dependency upon the power of God that is at work within us. And that is where our journey must begin. So what I want us to see together today is this, that in order to grow, you must begin by understanding God's role in your growth, okay? So let's look at verses three and four because that's really where Peter makes the point. He says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, Okay, right away there in verse 3, we see the subject being introduced. The subject of that sentence is the word power. All right, power. And I want us to think about this power because here's the first thing we must understand as we think about God's work. We must understand that we must depend on God's power. That's the first point that Peter makes here in this text. You must depend upon the power of God if you are to make any progress at all. So let's think about this idea of power and sanctification and spiritual growth. What is the source of the power there in verse 3? Well, Peter makes it really clear, okay? It's not just power. It's not your power. It's not my power. Whose power is it there in the text? It is his divine power. Peter doesn't even stop with saying it's divine power. He says it's his divine power. It's not your divine power. It is his. It belongs to him, and it is divine by nature. So here's what that means for us, the fact that the source of our power is from God. When you are tempted to say, well, I'm stuck, you need to go back to the foundation because the power for you to grow, to make change, does not reside in you. It resides actually in him. In the grammar here, it's referring back to the person of Jesus. You see, it's Jesus's divine power. The power that was so evident in his calming of the storm, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead, the tearing of the veil, that is the power that is now made available to you and is being funneled down into the effort of making you to look like him. You see, power, it's the ability or enablement to do something. And his power, you see, his power to change you, it is overwhelming. 
It's not a wimpy human power to just simply make a good choice. It is an infinite, a gushing power. It is divine power. Where he is the fountainhead, his power becomes your power, and everything about your sanctification finds its source in his power. With him, without him, you're stuck, but with him. There's this throbbing, constant, powerful source that undergirds not only your efforts, but your progress as well. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to his power that works in us. You see, if you're feeling stuck, you need to go back and realize that you must depend upon the power of God because the source of that power comes not from you, but from him. We've seen the source. Let's talk about the nature of it here a little bit. What does he say? His divine power has granted to us. That word there, granted, all right? Look at the way that that's being used. He's he's giving us this power. But the idea that's in the text here is not just the idea of a gift that's being given. It's the idea of a grant, okay? A grant. Now, you may have heard of a, of a grant deed before, all right? Now, recently, several months ago, I went through the, we'll call it an epically painful process of buying a house, right? I sold one, and I took the proceeds, and I bought another. And the process stretched on for months. You've heard of a 30-day escrow? This was not that, all right? It went on and on and on. And as it turned out, I ended up getting squeezed from both sides where if I did not get that thing closed up right away, it was going to cost me a lot of money. Things in California, they make them really simple just for me. But I had to go down to the county recorder's office in order to get it to close on that day. Otherwise, four more days would go by and it was going to be very expensive. So down to the county recorder's office, I went. Now, I will tell you, if you've never been to the county recorder's office, I don't know what it's like here in Baltimore, but out in Los Angeles, it is a circus, okay? People are getting married. It feels like people are getting buried. They're opening businesses. They're starting things. There are solicitors there. They're trying to sell you products with giant cardboard signs around their necks that say, I am not employed by the county. I'm saying, why would anyone buy anything from you with a sign like that around your neck? But it's crazy. People there in wedding dresses, and I mean, it's nuts. And I walk into this environment with nothing. I sign my name, and I walk out with a grant deed in my hand, where I now own something. I walked in with nothing. I walked out with exactly what I came for. One minute, I did not own property. The next minute, I did. But there's a very highly technical legal process that goes with this. It it, it gives you the rights that go with owning something, the privileges that go with owning it, the responsibilities that go with owning it. In California, the property taxes that go with owning it. I paid, and now it's mine. A grant deed. That's the idea here in this text where God grants to us his power. The only difference here is that we did not pay. And yet, he has still legally and technically conferred upon us this thing that we can now claim as our own, along with all the attendant rights and privileges and responsibility. You see, 
His power and your sanctification, it is a gift, but it's so much more than that. It's, a, it's an endowment that comes with rights and privileges and responsibilities. And, and in this text, he says it's past tense. He has granted in the past this thing to us. It's already done, and the results continue to bombard you even today. That's the nature of it. It comes from him. It was granted to us. Let's look at the availability of this power. He says it comes to you through the true knowledge of him who called you. It's available to us. This is the amazing part. It's not some distant, far-off kind of power that we can never find or tap into. It is right here before us, and it's possible, we're told here in this text, for us to know it. Through the knowledge of his son, that word knowledge there, it's a full, deep, a thorough, complete, rich awareness. You see your knowledge of Christ, it's rooted in your awareness of him. And the more clearly you see Jesus, the greater power you will have in your spiritual life. He alone is the force that not only mandates, but then enables change within you. You show me a person who's growing And I'll show you someone who is growing in their knowledge of Christ. Show me someone who is stuck, and I'll show you someone who is failing to look at him. You see, vision of Christ, we're told in this text, that is what equals power to change. It is your ability to see him and to know him in his death and his resurrection and all that he has done for you. That's the reason for the emphasis that's here in this passage throughout all of chapter 1 on sight and on seeing him. It's repeated over and over and over again because this power is only available to us as we find it by looking to the person of Christ. He is the source. He has granted it to us and it is available. But one more thing before we move on here that I want us to see about the power of God to change us is that it's also guaranteed. Look at what he says there at the end of verse 3. He says that this power is available through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That word there, by, it's the agency by which he used his power to give us something. What was the agency by which he guarantees that this power is available to us, that we can know Christ? What's the text say? It's by his what? His glory and his excellence. You see, there there is nothing that is more central to the nature of God than his glory and his absolute perfection. In fact, we're told in the book of Revelation that the first thing you'll hear when you step into heaven is this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory. Why is that such a big deal? Because he used that perfection and that glory to save each one of us. And now he is using it to perfect every one of us. These characteristics, they're unchanging constants that define his very nature. You see, they're guaranteed essential pieces of who he is. And and here's the bottom, bottom line for what that means to each one of you and to me. It means that when God stops being glorious, you'll be allowed to say that you have no spiritual power. When he ceases to be holy, you'll be justified finally in claiming that you can't any longer grow. But as long as he is either one of those things, the spiritual wind in your sails, it blows with one never-ending gust. And guess what the scriptures tell us? God cannot 
cease being glorious. He cannot cease being perfect. And therefore, you always have access to his power to see your life conformed to that of Christ. So, why are we talking about this? Because it's the power of God that is available to you that enables you to make any progress at all. It's your dependence upon his power, your knowledge that it was granted as a gift to you, knowing that it's available in Christ and realizing that it's guaranteed by his very nature that allows you to understand that the power and sanctification, it comes from God, not from you. Now, this doesn't mean that we can walk away and not do anything. We must apply ourselves. But it's not because we think our efforts will change anything. We apply ourselves because we're incredibly motivated and and excited to see his power being funneled through us into our lives. The very foundation of your ability to grow, to apply yourself diligently to the work of spiritual growth, it, it must be grounded squarely in your reliance upon the power of God at work in you. Now, you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I need more than just an awareness that God is powerful. How does that power work, and what does his power provide? Well, that's really the second thing that I want us to see here in this text. You must not only depend upon God's power, you must recognize God's provision as well. That's the second point that Peter makes here for us. Look at this provision that which he has given to us, the scope of it is incredible. Verse three, what has he given to us? What has his power granted to us? What has, what has he provided? Nothing less than all things. Isn't that amazing? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness there in verse three. That's the provision of God. There are no withering leaves here. There is a solid trunk that is funneling the truth of scripture out of the ground of life up into the branches of the way that you live. You have everything that you need to flourish and to be firmly rooted. The emphasis here in this text, it's on that word, all things. It's amazing where Peter wants to get the point across to us that he has given us not just some things, not just a couple of things that might be helpful as as we walk along. Through his power, he has given us everything. That is his provision to us. It's an astounding promise. Well, what's he given us? He's given us everything pertaining both to life and to godliness. Look at the impact of that life there. It's talking about the living of your life as it is bound upon this earth before the gaze of a holy God. Everything that you need to live rightly before God, you have in the person of Christ. He says, and not just life, but also for godliness. You don't just have what you need to walk worthy. You have what you need to relate to God in a worthy way, life and godliness, the the relationship to God that is not bound by your life upon this earth. You have everything that you need. That is what God has given to us. The impact of this now for us is that we have no excuses Because when the power of God's provision is behind you and available to you to know in the pages of his word, there is no reason to continue on living like you never met him at all. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says it this way, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance, overflowing 
for every good deed. And you say, I just can't. Peter says, you can. You say, I'm stuck. And Jesus tells us here that he has already provided all things. It's not as though he might provide some things. It's not as though he could provide some things, but won't. He already has. You see, and you're holding the true knowledge of him right here in your hands. So when you are growing in your knowledge of Christ, his power provides you with the necessary sufficiency to do right and the direction to know how. That's an amazing promise. It's not just knowing Christ. It's knowing about the promises that that he has granted to us and depending upon them. God's role in sanctification, you see, it goes far beyond just the provision of mere knowledge. It gets real very fast. Because what else does he tell us here in this text? Well, look at verse 4. We must not only depend upon his power and recognize his provision, but the third thing that Peter tells us is that we must also cling to his promises. Look at verse 4. He says, by his own glory and excellence, by which these things he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You see, God has used his power to give you all things that you need, which is the knowledge of Christ. But the knowledge of Christ and the person of God has now made infinite numbers of promises to us. Well, what are these promises? It's every promise that he's ever made to us in the entirety of his word. And I'll just run through these, and if you want to write the passages down, look at them later, you can, because there's so many of them. But in Romans 8 9, we're we're told that he has promised us spiritual life. In John 11, 25, we are promised a resurrected life. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we're promised the Holy Spirit to help us and to guide us. In John 10, 10, he promises to give us grace when we are weary. In Galatians 5.22, he promises to give us joy as we find our fulfillment in him. In Isaiah 40.31, we're promised strength as we walk with him. In John 16.13, we're promised guidance as we're confused by life. In Isaiah 41.10, he promises to help us when we are weak. In John 14.26, he promises to instruct us when we're confused. In Ephesians 1.17, he promises to give us wisdom when we lack it. In John 14.1-3, he promises us a home in heaven with him for eternity. In 1 Timothy 4.8, he promises to bestow upon us eternal reward because we've walked faithfully with him. And Peter says here, it's for by these things, God's glory and excellence, that he has made these promises to us, that he has granted these promises to us, that we must now cling to for our spiritual life. What's he say there in verse 4? Look with me. He says, he has granted to us. How does he talk about these promises? How does he describe them? He says that they are precious and very great promises. They're not just any old promises, as you can see from the list that I just read off for you. They are precious and very great. And I I want us, as we think about clinging to these promises and why that's so important, I want us to camp out on those, those two words, precious and great here, for just a moment. That idea of being something being precious, value is, is tied to scarcity of something. Now, I remember very well, my, my wife and I 
we grew up together. And I know you don't know her. I wish she was here with me today. She's definitely the better half of the two of us. She is not here. But we grew up together from the church nursery all the way through high school, all right? And I never dated anyone except for her. I mean, she was the very first person that I dated. We dated for five years, got married. I would not recommend dating that long, but that's what we did. And I remember, right after we started dating, I took my very first trip to my very first jewelry store. I wanted to buy my, at that point, girlfriend some nice jewelry. Man, I tell you what, those prices made my nose bleed, right? I mean, my jaw was on the ground, you know, where you're trying to look all cool as a guy, like you know what you're doing, and yeah, of course I knew that was going to be that much money. Oh. You don't want the jeweler to see that you don't actually have that much money. But I was blown away by the value of a gemstone, and I was shocked by all the classifications of color, cut, clarity, and whatever that fourth C is. Why are gemstones so very valuable? Well, as I learned on that day, because they're scarce. They're not gravel. You can't walk outside in the parking lot and pick one up. Try giving that to your girlfriend and see how it goes over. You see, when something is scarce, it becomes extremely valuable. Scarcity leads to value. And, and that's the idea here of this word in this text. It's most often used in Scripture to talk about a precious stone. Revelation 21 talks about it. It says, The foundation stones of the city of heaven are adorned with every kind of precious. There is the word stone. And he lists off all kinds, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, onyx. And he keeps going. Of exceedingly mind-blowing value. That's the idea here in this text. You see, the promises of God are not ethereal concepts that exist, you know, way up there in the clouds somewhere. No. They are exceedingly precious. They are exceedingly valuable. Why? Because they are so rare. And yet he's dumped upon you a treasure chest full of gems in the form of his promises. And he has said, here, Take these and cling to them and use them so that you may grow in Christ. It's unbelievable, these promises that he's given to us. But Peter doesn't just call them precious. He also calls them there in verse 4, these magnificent promises. The word may, in your Bible might read, they're, they're very great. It's the word megas in the Greek language, which as you could guess from that term, it's where we get our word mega, Right? something that is very great, very large, very important, exceedingly significant. It can actually be a word that refers to the volume of something or the the scope of something. The idea here is that these promises are blaring. They're cranked up to full volume. They ought to encompass the biggest possible space. They should be monolithic in your eyes. They should rise up from the ground and fill everything about what you see. Now, out in California, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go to a place like Yosemite before, but if you ever get the chance to get out there, I would encourage you to do it. Because in Yosemite, one of the stark features that you'll see right away is a giant rock called El Capitan, okay? It's this enormous granite cliff. It's the biggest piece of granite in the entire world, 
I'm told. But what strikes you when you walk up to the very base of El Capitan is that it is so enormous that you cannot see over it, you cannot see around it, you look at it standing at the base, and it fills your whole vision and your periphery. It's so large that it looks like it's looming backwards over you. I mean, it's just enormous. It is great. It is magnificent in some ways. It is mega. It is megas here in this text. It fills up your sight. It is cranked up to the loudest possible volume. And that is what Peter says should be your perspective on the promises that God has given to you. They are very precious and they are very great. Why? Because it is through these promises, it is through your knowledge of them. What does Peter say? Look with me there at verse four. He says, the reason that these things are so precious and so great is that it is because of them that you grow. It is through those promises that you begin to grow, that you begin to be conformed to the divine nature, he says. You see, these promises, they're not just great and valuable. Wow, look at that, it shines and sparkles. No, it is through those promises that you may become something that you are not now. You see, they play a key role in your transformation. They're not randomly connected. I mean, just imagine a world in which you knew the truth of God but were not enabled to move towards him. That's not the way your world is. You see, you and I, we've been given truckloads of promises that all motivate us now and enable us now to move. The agency of change in your life is the promises that God has made. Without these promises and you're clinging to them, you are a sitting duck. But it's the promises of God that enable change and that affect and make them precious and magnificent. So we cling to them. We cherish them. We look to them. We claim them. We think about them when we sit down and when we rise up. They are to be everything we're told in our sight. They are to fill our senses because these promises of God, they are our lifeline to him. And so when you feel stuck, remember that God has not only brought to you the knowledge of Jesus Christ, thereby providing everything you need for life and godliness, but he has also gone further than that and handed to you an arsenal of promises that are precious and magnificent for you to use in your daily struggle. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of depending upon his power and recognizing his provision and, and clinging to his promises? Well, Peter gives us one more thought here in this passage, a fourth point, a fourth and really final point as he reflects on the nature of God's role in our sanctification. He says, it's for all these things so that you might submit to God's purposes, so that you may submit to his purposes, verse four. He says, it is through these promises that the purposes of God can be accomplished. What's that purpose? Look there. He says, so that you may become a partaker of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire or lust. That's why God desires to see you transformed. That's why we pursue our sanctification. 
This is why we cling to these promises and depend upon his power, because God has a very clear and specific purpose and intention for what he's seeking to do, you see, in your life. His first purpose there in the text is so that you might be conformed to God. Ephesians 4.13 tells us that this conformity to Christ, it's the goal of your sanctification so that you'd end up looking like the Son of God in your character and in the way that you walk. That's what it means to walk worthy, Ephesians chapter 4. The result of being brought into conformity to Christ is that you are now caught up into the nature of God is a partaker of his excellence, his virtue, and his glory that he produces in you. You see, you don't manufacture your own righteousness. Where does your righteousness come from? It comes from God alone. He is the one who produces it. And when you begin to partake in the holiness and goodness and righteousness of God, you running down that pathway that he has opened up and enabled you to run down, That is the pathway, we're told here, to escaping the corruption. And that's the second purpose of God, not just your conformity to him, but also so that you would stop being like you were. Look at that word there, corruption, and compare that word corruption to glory and excellence, precious and magnificent. Corruption, it it speaks of everything opposite all of those words. It's talking about a rotting or a decomposing corpse. Would you rather experience the the nature of God driven by his glory or experience the corruption of the world driven by your lust? Answering that question, that is the purpose of sanctification because it brings you down to the end of yourself realizing that you are broken, incapable, a sinner, and it hides you inside the protected power of God that is unleashed to revolutionize you into becoming like the person of Christ. You see, what Peter's trying to communicate to us here this morning is that you and I, we cannot hope to begin the doing of sanctification until we've grasped the knowing. The foundation for your spiritual growth, for life change in you, for victory over your sin, is not your own effort. It is through your understanding of God's working in your life. It's through your dependence upon his power, your recognition of his provision, your clinging to his promises, and your understanding and submission to his purposes that you can effectively then begin to turn your attention to the doing. It's only after you've grasped these great truths about what our God does to grow you that you can even think about beginning to turn and look at your part. And that's exactly what Peter does here in this text. And I know we don't have the time to go through the next six or seven verses. I wish we did. But Peter shifts gears very abruptly in verse 5. He says, for this very reason, in light of everything that God is doing, look what he says there. Only after you've known all of that and realized all of that, then you're equipped to make every effort He uses the word there, supply every effort. I'm here to say this morning and to show you from God's word that if you sit here and feel stuck in your spiritual growth, like you just can't go, it's because you're focused on the supplying of all this activity and attention independently from the knowing 
that which actually enables you to change. Because when you depend upon the power of God, found within his word, connected to you through the person of Christ for the purpose of your growth and transformation, you cannot help but be conformed to him. In order for your sanctification to progress, you must recognize God's role in your growth and found and ground your efforts in him and not yourself. I want to close us this morning with a concluding passage by reading verses 8 through 11. Because at the beginning of our time together, we asked the question, is this possible and can it work? And Peter, after explaining what God does and then going on and explaining what we are to do in verses 5 through 7, here is what he says. And it really is a promise that is aimed straight at our hearts and heads. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when we depend on him, when we see Christ, know Christ, and look to Christ, the answer to our initial question, can this work, can I get unstuck, is answered. It will work. It must work work because it's grounded in his very nature.